those are super cute kids, if I could say so myself. If I uh, haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and those were my kids. And uh, anyways, so glad that you're here with us, and thanks for uh, joining us. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, and now Christmas season is here. How, how crazy is that? Like, it's really wild. Like, yesterday, uh, my family did our annual traditional uh, Saturday after Thanksgiving uh, Christmas decorating day. Never do it before Thanksgiving. If some of y'all do that before Thanksgiving, shame on you. But, uh, no, so we did Saturday after Thanksgiving. So that was yesterday. I'm sore because I actually had to do lights for my parents' house and I got up on their roof and then we did lights for our house the next day. And I got two days of putting up Christmas lights. It's just too much. Like I hate putting up Christmas lights, but, uh, I like having Christmas lights. And so now I'm glad they're up, but I'm, I'm ready to go. It's Christmas season. We've got the tree up and all that stuff. And I don't know about you if you're ready for this season yet, but hopefully this morning will help you get into the mood as we like turn our attention, as Jason said, uh, and Adam said, uh, to like this Advent season as we prepare to celebrate and remember uh, Christ, our King, who has come for us. And so we're doing this new series, and as you saw a second ago, that the title of it, what we're calling it is, What Child Is This? What Child Is This? And we're going to uh, do the series out of John chapter 5. And uh, if you might remember, if you were here with us back in September, we started the book of John, started working our way through the book of John, and it's been about seven weeks in John 1 through 4, and then we took a break from that, but we're going to pick back up right where we left off in this series, and spend three weeks really diving in deep with John chapter five and to see who Jesus said he was. Like we asked this child, asked this question, what child is this? Who are we celebrating? Well, we see how Jesus actually reveals that to us himself in this chapter, chapter five of John. And I'm really looking forward to the, our time together in, in, in this book and in this chapter. And one of the reasons why I just like absolutely love the book of John is because it was written by the apostle John, who was kind of perhaps a self-proclaimed best friend of Jesus. I say that because it's, it's funny that throughout the, the Gospel of John, uh, the way that he refers to himself most often in this book is he calls himself the one that Jesus loved. Like how, like how great is that? Like I think that if I was writing a, a story of Jesus' life and I had been like an eyewitness of it, I think I would call myself that too. Like, yeah, I'm the one that Jesus loved, and then there were the other 11 disciples. But it, it's funny. I, I just get a kick out of that. But that's how John refers to himself. But I love this. I love the Gospel of John because we get this incredible insight into the person of Jesus from someone who was not only just an eyewitness of Jesus' life, but like super, super relationally close with Jesus. And so you have this, this really authentic and intimate account of who Jesus is. And it's a great place for us to try to answer this question, what child is this? What child is this that we're celebrating this Christmas season? So what we're going to do today is we're going to be in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to that. If you don't have a Bible, we give Bibles away for free out on the resource table, and we really encourage you to pick one of those up. We'd love for you to have one. If you're like me, if you're, if you're a Christian, oftentimes what we associate with Jesus, and really specifically what we associate to like following Jesus, we can often associate um, burden, uh, uh, weariness. Um, we can we can 
associate a lot of, having to do a lot of things that we don't feel really good at. And we can get really tired of it with that. And oftentimes, if you're like me, it can associate a, a sense of like a real lack of, of power or drive to do those things. And like, this is super honest. Like, here's the pastor saying, but like when I, I think about following Jesus, oftentimes what I associate is like, I don't feel like I'm really good at it. And I don't feel like I measure up to what I feel like Jesus is wanting of me. And like when I think about following him, I often think about the ways that I'm falling short. And I often also feel like a lack of desire or even more so power to be the person that I feel like Jesus deserves for me to be and like wants me to be. I don't know if y'all can relate. Um, but oftentimes when I associate with what I associate to following Jesus is a, I associate um, a lot of things I need to do and not a lot of power to do them. And it, and it can get a little hard. And it can get a little, I can get a little weary. And I think about that and I think, is that the way that the Christian life is supposed to be? And when I read it in scripture, it just seems like clearly the answer to that is no. But it so often feels like the answer to that is yes when it comes to my experience. And it's like, well, what's going on? And what's, what's the disconnect there? Well, it's, it's those questions, it's that question that I want us to go to this passage and ask and see how Jesus answers. Because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two things. Who has come and what has he come to bring? Who has come and what has he come to bring? And, and in light of who he is and what he's come to bring, is there any help for us with this restlessness, this weariness that we can feel and this lack of power that we, can, that we often feel when it comes to what we're supposed to do in following Jesus. And so, if you will, pick up with me in John chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read this uh, through verse 8 for us, and then we'll stop there. So verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man, was, uh, one man was there who had uh, been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up and take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Okay, let's uh, talk a little bit of study. Hey, look at that, they're working. Awesome. Good, good thing. Okay, anyways, great. Glad y'all could follow along. So little co- let's just go back to the setting here. So what you have is, is this, this day, uh, the setting is that in Jerusalem, you've got this one area of Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, this area that, that's got this pool. And in, around this pool are all of these uh, lame, uh, blind, paralyzed, uh, sick people. And the tradition of that day, and this is really interesting, the tradition or legend of that day was that if, 
if the water in the pool began to stir by itself, it began to move by itself, then they believed it was like an angel that, from God that had come to stir that. And the first person who got into the pool would be healed of whatever disease that they had. So that's, that's like the setting. Like Jesus shows up and there's all these like multitudes of sick people around this pool. And you can imagine it's like a heartbreaking scene. Like there are like, again, multitudes, tons and tons of people that have like no hope, or I would say very little hope of getting better. And they're putting their hope in this, this pool. They're hoping that they could be the first one in if by chance that there's these ripples and by chance that there's actually something to this legend. And so that's where we see Jesus encounter this guy. And through this interaction with Jesus and this lame man, we, we see some pretty amazing things about Jesus. Like if we're going to ask the question, part of, part of our message today is like, who, who has come? Who has come? What, what child is this that we're celebrating this Christmas season? Well, you we see a couple of really awesome things about Jesus right here from the, from the get-go. Let me just point out a couple for us. The first is that uh, we see that Jesus uh, knew about this man. Like he, he actually knew this man in kind of in a supernatural way. I think the way that John writes this is he's trying to give us some insight that Jesus has supernatural knowledge about this guy. This is what he writes in verse 6. He says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time. And I think, again, like John, the reason John writes it that way is like he's trying to say, no one had to tell Jesus what was going on with this guy. Like Jesus knew. Jesus knew this man. Jesus knew his situation. I mean, I don't know how long this guy had been coming to this pool, but probably for years and years and years. We know that he'd been paralyzed or lame for 38 years. And Jesus knows this about him. And guys, one of the things that's worth pointing out is like, who has come? Like, it's someone who knows everything. He's all-knowing. Which means that he knew all about this man and he knows all about you. Which can be an intimidating thought. But so, like I think about Psalm 139, 2 through 4 says this. It says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And I think, man, okay, I don't know if I like that God knows me <laughs> like that. But the more that, at least what I found, is that the, the more you know Jesus. The more you know the one who knows you, the more comforting and beautiful this promise, this truth is. But right off the get-go, get I think James, uh, John is wanting us to see, hey, Jesus has this all-knowing. Like, all, all He's all-knowing. He's the all-knowing healer. He knew this man. And then he moves on and says this. Uh, he's, he talks about how Jesus responds to the fact that he knows this guy, that he, the knowledge of this man does not move Jesus to go the opposite direction, that Jesus knows him and feels great compassion for him. That Jesus is like the all compassionate healer. Like Jesus' knowledge of this guy doesn't say, okay, well, I don't, like, he's messy and he's broken and I know all of his baggage and so I'm going to head the other direction. But here it's just another example that we see throughout Scripture of God, of Jesus moving towards the broken, moving towards the needy, moving towards the hurting. That Jesus' knowledge of this man leads him to feel deep compassion 
for this man. And again, it's, it's this truth that makes Jesus' all knowledge of you and of me comforting. That when Jesus knows me, it doesn't, doesn't scare him away. It actually causes him to come close to us, even if we're messy and, and even though we're broken. And so that's what you see Jesus do here. And like, look at this exchange that Jesus has with this guy. He, he asked, uh, Jesus asked this man, the, the, probably the easiest question, perhaps in, in all of scripture. <laughs> Guy's been sick for 38 years. He walks up to him and says, hey, do you want to be healed? It's like, uh, yes. Yeah, I, I do. You think that that's how he would answer, right? But notice that's not what the guy says. I mean, let me read it for you. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, the guy doesn't say yes. He just describes this really pitiful, sorrowful, mis- miserable situation. But then notice how Jesus responds to him, that he doesn't say, well, like, do you believe in me? <laughs> you know, like, do you know who I am? Do you have faith that, that I can heal you? Which I, w- I would think those are all like fair things for Jesus to say to this guy. But he just hears this man describe his miserable situation. And Jesus, out of compassion, like he cares about this guy. He heals him. And get up, take your bed and walk. And the guy gets up and takes his bed and walks. That's who has come. The God who cares for you. The God that in he, the book of Hebrews describes as our sympathetic high priest. Who knows you and knows what you're going through and is not put off by it, but is drawn to you. He cares about you. He's our compassionate God our compassionate healer. I just, I just love that. And then, of course, the other thing, the really glorious thing we see here about Jesus is that he has the power to heal. And so he does. He, he heals this guy. And notice, the, notice this incredible, like, again, John's writing this to help us see the, the all-powerful nature of Jesus. That Jesus says, you know, get up, you know, take your bed and walk. And it says, at once, at once, the man was able to do that. Like at once, at the, Jesus speaks it and bones and muscles that had not been used and had not worked for 38 years are all of a sudden able for the guy to get up and walk. Like this is the power of Jesus. He's the great healer. He's the God who knows you, cares about you, and is able to heal you. That's who's come. And that's good news, is it not? Now, you would think that the rest of this passage would be all about how everyone celebrated what just took place. Like, that would make sense for the rest of the passage to be about how this guy gets up and walks and he does a little jig and everyone's clapping and excited and maybe they pick him up on his shoulders and cart him off or pick Jesus up on on their shoulders and like, he's a great healer, he's amazing. I mean, you would think that's a good response to what just took place in front of people, but that's not what happens at all. In fact, the the second half of verse 8, like, you don't even get, at least the way that the authors break, or the later the translators break up the verses, you don't even get a, a, full sen, a full sentence out of this, a full verse out of this. You just say, okay, Jesus says, get up and walk. God gets up and walks, and then it says, now this day was the Sabbath, which feels kind of like a weird statement. Like, why go there, John? But now this day is the Sabbath. And I think the reason he goes there is because uh, 
what, what John is trying to draw our attention to is that um, Jesus came to heal this guy, no doubt. Like Jesus was there on purpose to heal this man because he knew him and he cared about him and he healed him. But Jesus healed this man on this day, on the Sabbath day, also on purpose to show us that Jesus had also come to bring not just healing for this man, but healing for all of us as well. And in Jesus' first coming, because the Bible teaches that Jesus came, he died for us, rose again, he ascended back to the Father, and that we're told one day he's going to come again and set everything right. Everything that's broken will be made unbroken, will be set correct. But we're told that, that in the first coming, that Jesus' primary goal was not to fix the brokenness of like the physical human body. Though, of course, Jesus did that and gave us a picture of what is to come in his second coming. He did some of that. He, he healed sick people like we see in this story. But we're told that in the Bible that Jesus' primary purpose in his first coming was not to heal our physical bodies, but primarily to heal our hearts and to heal our souls. And that he came to set us free from what causes our souls to always feel restless. Restless in the, means, in the sense of not anxious, but restless in the sense like it can never rest. Restless and overburdened and weary. He came to set our souls free and set our hearts right. That's the primary healing that our great healer Savior God came to do and his first coming. And it's the Sabbath that he did this on the Sabbath that reveals that to us. See, we asked the second question this morning, what did Jesus come to bring? Specifically, what we'd say is that what Jesus came to bring, what we see at least in this passage, is that he came to give us, to bring us the ability to rest. And he came to bring us the power to change. They came to bring us the ability to rest and he came to bring us the power to change. And let me explain what I mean by that. So let me go back to this, this passage for us to see um, how Jesus came to bring us the ability to rest. Because if you, for this to really mean something to us, for this to really move us, we have to first understand what, the, what did he bring us the ability to rest from? Like, why do we need rest? And what kind of rest did he bring us? And that's what John kind of draws out in the rest of this passage. So let me pick back up in verse 8. He says, you know, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10 says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed um, and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? He repeats that a few times. Now, verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, again, so you got this man. He's been lame for 38 years. He, he gets healed. Instead of it resulting in amazement and rejoicing, it results in a confrontation. He's, Religious leaders of the day come up to this guy. He's holding his bed and walking for the first time in 38 years, perhaps the first time in his entire life. And they say to him, hey, it's awesome that you're walking. Now They, they say, hey, why are you carrying your bed? You can't carry your bed. It's the Sabbath. And the, the reason that this leads to this confrontation instead of this incredible rejoicing is because this man, like all of us, are under the law. This man, like all of us, are under the law. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. See, in the Bible, the law is, what that is, is that in, in the Old Testament, God had given the nation of Israel, but really laid it out for all of us, rules on how to live. And the purpose of these rules was to give us a picture of God's holiness, that they were an outline of God's incredible splendor and nobility and holiness and righteousness. And they were to lay out for us how we are to reflect the nature of God and that as God is holy, we are to be holy. And therefore, the law laid out what that looks like. How do we be holy? How do we live like God? Well, there's, there's the law. It was, out, it was laid out for us to have an idea of how holy God is and how we are to be holy like him. And one of the laws was the law of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, the law of the Sabbath was that you were to take one day of a week, one day of the week and not work. Not work at all. And it's a great law, and it's a great law, right? We should do this. But one work, one day a week not to work so you would have rest and so that you would trust it kind of forces you to trust God that he's going to meet your needs. So you're not working every day to meet your needs. You can trust God's got you. And so you can take a day off and you can rest. It's it's a great law. Now here's the issue is that the the Jewish leaders at that time and even a little bit before this time had begun to create all of these rules, extra rules, and extra regulations around the law so that they could um, feel really confident that they were keeping the law. And the reason that 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 mattered for them, that they would feel confident in keeping the law, is because they had this idea, and really, as I'm going to try to point out in a second, we all have, but it said if you could... If you can measure up, if your performance can be enough, then you feel like you can get some rest. That we feel like rest is found when we measure up. And if you have all these laws and regulations that will keep you to make sure that you're keeping God's law, then you can rest in that and feel good about yourself. And then also makes you arrogant. You can look down at others, but that's another message. But anyways, you can feel some rest if you're keeping all these laws and all these regulations. And so the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, created this great cloud of extra laws, extra rules, extra regulations around God's law. For example, and this is, this is kind of is interesting to me, but like, um, one of the, one of the laws was that you, you can't actually pick up your bed and walk. <laughs> like you can't carry anything. That was the law. Now you could uh, wear clothes, which is, that's good. And so if they were, if you had something draped on your body, like a shirt, that was okay. 
And so there was an exception to this rule that if this guy had actually picked up his bed and draped it over him, then he, then he would have been fine because that would account as clothing. And it really was a, it's an exception to their, to their law. It's interesting to me. But if he carried it, right out. That would be work. And therefore, he's breaking the Sabbath. Another, another law was that a regulation to help people keep the Sabbath was they said, no, you couldn't do any medical work. No medical work could be done. And so one of the things that they did in that, in that time is if they had a toothache, they would use vinegar to treat their toothache. And they would like, you know, dip it in vinegar or put vinegar on their mouth. But, they, but the law was, the regulations were from the religious leaders is that you can't put vinegar on your teeth. Not on the Sabbath, because that's medical work. That's, that's like, you know, that counts as work. But it was okay to put vinegar on anything you ate. And so people would just douse their food with vinegar if they had a toothache and eat it in hopes that the vinegar would get on their teeth and help their teeth feel better. Like, isn't that, like, isn't that interesting? Like, that, that's, you had all these rules, you had all these regulations, and you had these exceptions, but the reason that they had this so narrowly defined is because they wanted to make sure they were keeping God's law, and because if they kept God's law, then they feel like they could measure up, that they could achieve, and if they're achieving that, then they can rest, because they can know, oh, I'm doing what I ought to be doing based on my performance, and I can find rest for my restless soul that we all experience. This is kind of their, their whole mindset into all this. Now, we think that that's kind of funny. And, and it, I mean, some of that is kind of funny. But the truth is, we all do this. We all do this. And the reason the Bible says we all do this is because we're all under the law. And the way this shows up for us is different, but it's in a lot of ways the same. And here's what I mean by that, is that we we all have this drive to measure up to some kind of standard. That we all have this, like, in our conscious, consciousness. We have this, this idea of how, of what we should be. And we, you know, you think about all of the major world religions in this day, like they, they share a lot of the same moral code. You know, don't, don't steal, don't lie, love, like these kind of things. And it's like, why are those showing up in all of the same moral code and all these? It's because there's something in us that we just know this is how we're supposed to be. The Bible say that because we're all under the law. And that for you, whether you're religious or not religious, you still share this. Because like, Religious people, they just find a specific arena in which they're trying to measure up to. They think, okay, I'm going to, in my church or in my religion, I'm going to make sure I do all the things I ought to do and none of the things I shouldn't do so that I can feel like I've measured up. But if you're not religious, then you, then you oftentimes, and even religious people do this as well, but that you find another arena to do this in. And so it could be with your career, you know, in your boss's eyes or in, with your parents when you were growing up, or it could be with your peer group, or it could be just internally. You have these standards of things that you feel like you ought to do or who you ought to be. And you feel this pressure that can get so burdensome to measure up in the eyes of others or even in your own eyes. We all are under the law. We all have this internal drive 
to measure up, and we try to measure up by our performance. Do we not? And it wears us out. It can get exhausting. That's what this man was feeling. Because he was under the law. And it's what we feel because we're under the law. Because here's what the law does, guys. is It shows us how we're supposed to live. And it shows us who God is. But the law ultimately shows us that we're not like God. That the law isn't something that we were ever, was ever designed for us to rest in. The law was designed to show us how we fall short of what God had called us to, to do. And the people he's called us and made us to be. And that James compares the law to a mirror. And a mirror is great to look at and see that you're dirty. <laughs> but don't you dare try to wash your face with the mirror. That's not what it's, that's not what it's for. It's not going to do the trick. And so the law doesn't bring rest. It just shows you how you fall short. I mean, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3. He says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Sin literally meaning of missing the mark. And like, I live with this. Like, I'm very much aware that I am not the husband, I'm not the parent, I'm not the pastor, and I'm not the friend that I want to be. And really, honestly, that I feel like I should be, that I ought to be. Like, why do I carry that burden with me? It's because I'm under the law. And guys, I think that you can relate in a similar way. And the reason that you can is because we're under the law and it brings insecurity and it brings anxiousness and it brings guilt and it brings restlessness because the way we feel like we can overcome that is by doing better, performing better. And if we just do what we ought to do, if we perform just right, then we can find rest in our performance. But that rest doesn't come because the law wasn't given to bring rest. It was there to show us that we fall short and we get so, so tired. But that's where Jesus comes in. Because all that to say is that that's why we need rest. That's why it feels sometimes like we've got bags underneath the eyes of our soul, which is a weird picture, but I think you can resonate with that. It's like our soul has bags under its eyes. And it's like we just can't find rest. We can get so weary. And then Jesus, Jesus comes and he heals us man on the Sabbath. And he heals it on the Sabbath to show us that we can, through him, have the ability to rest. Because he is at work. This passage ends with, with Jesus saying, John 17, he says, um, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is a, a really incredible statement. that Jesus is saying, hey, Yes, yeah, get a layoff on this guy who you say is breaking the Sabbath. Because the reason actually this guy can actually enter the Sabbath and the reason any of us can enter into the Sabbath rest of Jesus is because Jesus is actually working. That just like the Father, Jesus is always at work. And it's because of Jesus' work that we can rest. Because what was Jesus' work? Well, Jesus' work was to come to the earth and live the perfect life the life that completely fulfilled the law. 
and then to go to the cross and die, the puni- die in our place for the punishment that we deserve for breaking the law. And then rising again to show that his death was sufficient payment for us so that through Christ we can be united with him in faith. For Christ's work to count on our behalf. See, the great promise of Jesus is that because of Jesus' work, because he kept the law perfectly and then died for us, if we believe in that, if we put our faith in that, we trust in him, then his work counts for us. It's like we inherit his resume. We get his record that everything that he did counts now as if we did it, if, we, if we're united with Christ through faith. And therefore, because Christ worked, we can rest. Because Christ worked, we can rest. This is incredible. It's like, it's like when you marry someone, if you marry someone who's super rich, as soon as y'all say, I do, and you're united, all of their money now becomes your money. Well, that's how it is with Christ. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, all Christ's righteousness, how he kept the law perfectly, his record becomes your record. Your record goes away, and you just have his record, which means you measure up. Because of Christ, because of Christ's work, you measure up in the eyes of God. So you don't have to do anything. Your performance doesn't matter. Only his performance matters. And so therefore, you can literally, you can, you can rest. Let me be super clear. Because this means that you don't have to do anything. To make yourself acceptable to God. You don't have to do anything. Like you don't have to keep the law at all in order to measure up in God's eyes if you've been united with Christ through faith. Because he's done all of the work. He's kept it perfectly. You can't add to a perfect record. It's already perfect. You just rest in his record. You don't have to obey God. To measure up to God. Did you ever think you'd hear that at church? That's the rest you're promised by Jesus. Now hear this. Because the next question that would make sense to ask is, then why obey? Why would we actually obey? Does Jesus not care if we obey now? Can we just sin and live however we want? Well, go back to this passage and see how Jesus interacts with this guy. He says this. He says in verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. The afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. And then watch this. What's he say? Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So what do we get from this? Does Jesus not care if we sin? He clearly does. He finds this guy after healing him and says, hey, sin no more. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, when I healed you, I healed your physical body. But guys, that was, that's just, that, my friend, that was just to be a stepping stone for you to hear this. So yeah, just as I healed you physically, I'm here to heal your soul. And so I, I want you to not just find in me the gift of your physical healing, but the gift of your heart healing, your soul healing. 
See, I, I don't want you to, I don't want to just heal you to heal you, but my healing for you was as, as a, a step towards calling you to holiness. And I think he says the same thing to us, that Jesus has come to free us from the law, to heal the restlessness of our soul, but not just so that we can now live for ourselves, but so that we can be moved to holiness, that we can sin no more. But what would cause us to sin no more if we don't have to, to measure up? Well, what do we see here? We don't, we don't sin. We're, we're, moved, we're motivated as a, as a Christian not to sin now in light of the work of Christ, not in order to measure up, but because of the love that Jesus has given us. See, we're now compelled by love to obey God. See, we're compelled by the love of Jesus to love Jesus. And in John chapter 14, over and over and over again, he says, if you love me, you obey my commands. He doesn't say, if you, to measure up to me, you obey my commands. He says, if you love me, you obey my commands. And we will love him. We're moved to obey him because of the great love he's given us. Because he loved us first. Because he healed us first. Because he's made it to where we're already acceptable to God. We don't do stuff to be acceptable. We, we obey because we already are. See, we are moved to obey. Our hearts are actually compelled to obey God in light of how he's loved us. Super powerful. The other thing that we see in this passage that moves us to obey God now is that we obey because, there, because we trust Jesus. We trust Jesus. I mean, what's he say to this guy? He says, hey, go sin no more so that nothing worse will happen to you. Sin no more so nothing worse will happen to you. Well, like, because Jesus, remember, he's our compassionate God. He knows all and he loves us. He cares about us. He knows there are consequences to sin. He knows that. And for Christians, the consequence isn't not measuring up and therefore being rejected by God. That's secured for us in Christ. Again, we've been set free from the law. That's, that's incredible, but there's still consequences. There's natural consequences for sin. There's discipline falling under God and there's missed opportunities. And Jesus knows, man, that's, I don't want that for you. He's our compassionate God. He wants what's best for us. And he says, hey, don't sin. And we would say, man, okay, I won't sin because I do. I want to avoid these consequences, but I will be moved to not sin because I trust Jesus. And for guys, for Christians, one of the big questions you have to ask is, do I believe that God is for me or is God keeping things from me? Is God for me or is he keeping things from me? And if God would not keep his own son from us, then I think we can say that he's not keeping things from us. He's for us. If he's for us, he's going to tell us what's best. And because we trust him, because you can trust him in light of Jesus, then we say, okay, God, I want to obey. So I'm going to go sin no more. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for you. That's a great motivation to obey. The third motivation we see here is that the motive, we can obey because we're new, because we've been changed by Jesus. Notice the order of events here in this passage. Jesus heals this man, and then he calls him to obey. And guys, that's how Jesus works in our lives. That Jesus heals us first. It's a free gift. It's completely by grace. And by healing us, he makes us new. Second Corinthians 5.17, you're, you're a new creation. The old's gone, the new has come. Like We become a new person. It's our whole study in Ephesians that we did late, earlier this year. It's, it's this idea that in Christ, you are made a new person. 
And you're given a new heart with new desires. And so now we can obey because it actually flows naturally from who we really are. Because Jesus changed us. We obey Jesus because it actually flows from who we are. These are great motivations. So Jesus has freed us from the law. But because he has, he moves us to obey. But not out of fear and not out of striving and struggling to measure up, but because of love and trust and because of the power, the change that Jesus has brought to us. And in all of those motivations, guys, are grounded in the rest given to us by Jesus as a result of his work for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And it's awesome. Well, I'm out of time, but I I do want to just draw one more thing. Not only has Jesus um, come to bring us the, the ability to rest, but he's also come to bring us the power to change. And I really don't have a lot of time on this, but I just want to point out, guys, that if, you are, if you're here today and you just think, okay, I, I get that, like in my head that makes sense, but I just find that in my life, I just, like, I just keep butting my head up against the same wall. Like I just keep sinning in the same area and area. It doesn't matter what's motivating me. If the fear of not measuring up or all this love and trust, and that cause, it doesn't, like I just can't seem to change. What's going on? And what I would say to you is, oh, you need to believe what Jesus has done for you. You need to believe that you've been set free from the law and you don't have to measure up because he's, you have his perfect record. And you need to lean into these other motivations. But you also need to understand how this works. And the way that Jesus heals this lame man gives us a great picture of how this works. Because Jesus has given, has given us all the ability, all the power that we need to change. But we have a part to play as well. And just like the, how Jesus says to this man, hey, get up and walk. And in doing so, he heals this man. He changes this man. He gives this man all the ability to become a changed person, someone who is no longer lame, but is walking. Guys, Jesus has said the same thing to every one of us. So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are changed in the moment. And you become a new person. And you have the ability to change. But you got to get up and walk. So you got to believe that he's given you this ability. If the lame man had, had, had said to Jesus, after Jesus says, hey, get up and walk. And the lame man says, Jesus, I, I just can't. Like, can you just pick me up? And can you give me a piggyback ride? Or can you move my legs for me? Like, that, like what in the world? That's, that's not faith, right? Now, Jesus is saying, hey, I've done everything. I've given you the power to change. I did it on the cross. It's because of my work you can rest. But rest in my work. And let let my work move you to get up and walk, to get up and obey. I've given you all you need. I've done everything for you. Now you get up and walk in that truth. So Jesus has done everything, but because Jesus has done everything, we can get up and walk like Jesus has done everything. But we have a role to play. We have to get up and walk. So 
friends, this Christmas season, in light of Jesus and who we're celebrating, I pray that we'll find rest. And we'd quit striving to measure up, and we'd rest in Jesus' perfect record for us. But that would move us to obey, and we'd believe that he's come to bring us the ability to change. And we would believe it and get up, and we'd walk in obedience to our awesome, great God, the great healer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And God, I pray this season would not just fly by and we get caught up in all the gifts and all of the to-dos. And Lord, we'd miss Jesus. He's the greatest thing we've ever been given. He's the great healer. He's given us what we desperately need, Lord. He's given us the rest that our souls clamor for. God, may we lean into his rest. Give us the faith to believe that his record counts for us, and may we rejoice in that. And then, God, let it move us to obey, and let us believe that he's given us the power to change, to obey you, and that we would do so in faith based on the work of Christ who has healed our hearts and healed our souls. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.